0: As we're going to be seeing today, God's love continues to flow into our lives, even when we mess up big time. And we're going to be reading in 1 Samuel 25 and uh, verses 14 through 23. Now one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, saying, Look, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, and he reviled them. But the men were very good to us, and we were not hurt, nor did we miss anything as long as we accompanied them when we were in the fields. They were a wall to us, both by night and day, all the time we were with them, keeping the sheep. Now therefore know and consider what you will do, for harm is determined against our master and against all his household, for he is such a scoundrel that one cannot speak to him. When Abigail made haste, took two hundred loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five sheep already dressed, five seahs of roasted grain, one hundred clusters of raisins, two hundred cakes of figs, and loaded them on donkeys. And she said to her servants, Go on before me. See, I am coming after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. So it was, as she rode on the donkey, that she went down under cover of the hill, and there were David and his men coming down toward her, and she met them. Now David had said, Surely in vain I have protected all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belongs to him, and he has repaid me evil for good. May God do so and more also to the enemies of David if I leave one male of all who belong to him by morning light. Now when Abigail saw David, she dismounted quickly from the donkey, fell on her face before David, and bowed down to the ground. Father, we thank you for this, your word, and it is our desire to uh, make our lives conform to it. We ask that your spirit would illumine us and enable us to understand and to love it, and to love you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. When Dr. Kravendam was here three weeks ago, he told us all kinds of fun stories, but I'm going to tell you a, a story about him that I don't think he told. Uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's a, a really neat one. It was uh, on December 29, year 2000, that he took two of his friends on a missions trip to Uganda. They traveled from, see, what city was it, from uh, Charlotte, North Carolina, North Carolina, over to London, and from London they caught a plane to Kenya, and then they were going to catch another plane over to Uganda. But anyway, on the flight they, uh, from London, they took a British Airways 747, and uh, I think that Dr. Grobendum was probably envious of uh, his two uh, friends, uh, Clark Bynum and... Uh, Gifford Shaw were their names because they for some strange reason got bumped from coach up into first class. So he's down in the lower level. They're up in first class two seats away from the pilot and at that moment nobody understood the significance of that divine providence. Very, very significant. Clark just thought it was a blessing from the Lord because he got lots of legroom, that he was a huge guy, six foot, seven inches tall, and not a skinny guy. He was all muscle. He played on the Clemson basketball uh, team. And anyway, uh, both of them committed their travel to the Lord, and after eating, they went to sleep. Six hours into the trip, everyone on the plane was startled awake with a jolt as the plane started zigzagging in a steep descent 19,000 feet uh, down, and uh, the cabin was in chaos. Everybody was screaming, uh, realizing that they were going to uh, die, and it took Clark and Gifford uh, just a few seconds to gain their sense of what in the world was happening and uh, notice what was going on up in the cockpit. Uh, what had happened was that a suicidal 27-year-old Kenyan by the name of Paul Kifa Mukunye had charged the cockpit, knocked the pilot, Hagen, out of uh, the seat. Actually, it was quite a wrestling match. He bit the, almost bit the guy's ear off, bit his finger. He managed to lock himself into the seat, take it off of autopilot, and push the plane down into a steep uh, dive. The two pilots and another officer were desperately trying to wrestle the controls out of this Kenyon's hand, and they just were not successful. He must have been one strong guy, because three men could not budge him out of that seat. Well, about that time, uh, Clark Bynum, that huge uh, the basketball player from from Clemson, he runs up into the cockpit grabs this Kenyon around the shoulders, yanks him back up over the seat, him screaming and kicking, and uh, then Gifford came along and they drug him out of the cockpit where everybody jumps on this guy, tied him up, put him in handcuffs, and put him at the uh, back of the airplane, tied him into a seat there. And uh, the pilot later said that they were five seconds from death, five seconds, that's how close they were to crashing. Uh, The wounded pilot managed to pull the plane out, took the plane safely on to Kenya, and uh, Clark and uh, Gifford uh, were required to stay in Kenya just answering questions, and Dr. Krobendam went on uh, for his missions trip. He's an unflappable guy. It's just the way uh, Dr. K is. Uh, You know, just business as usual. Uh, But (laughs) that's the story of Dr. Krobendam's missions trip and flight 2069 on British uh, Airways. Now, looking at the newspapers this past week, they said that if uh, Clark Bynum and Gifford Shaw had not instantly intervened as soon as they noticed what was going on, the plane would have crashed. If uh, those two had taken the attitude, well, you know, it's not our conflict, we shouldn't be messing around with other people's business, the plane would have crashed. If they had waited for the professionals to fix this problem, the plane would have crashed because the professionals were not able to fix that problem. If they had given in to fear of what Mukunye would think of them or what the professionals might think, you know, is it really my place to go in there? The plane would have crashed. And so today's sermon is on intervention in sticky situations. There are a lot of Christians who refuse to engage in intervention They're afraid to get involved, or maybe it's inconvenient to get involved, and they all have their excuses. It may be a wife who says, hey, it's not my place to contradict my husband or to go around my husband when uh, he is abusing me, or when he's uh, engaged in drunken driving, or when he's engaging in, in incest, and I say, nonsense, God has put you providentially into that position to be able to save your husband, just like Abigail tried to save her husband. Now, Nabal didn't want to be saved. He didn't want to be rescued by Abigail, but she tried to rescue him anyway. And too many wives in America have become enablers of sin and, believe it or not, have become enablers of crime for one reason or another. And sometimes they're enablers because they've got a mistaken idea of what submission is all about. They might think that submission means passivity. Now, it's not like they like the crime. They don't. They weep over it. They hate the crime that maybe their husband has engaged in. But uh, they fear reprisals from their husband if they turn him in or they think they can't do anything about it or they feel sorry for their husband. So rather than saving their husband's life and saving the lives of other people who are endangered by his reckless behavior, they turn a blind eye to it and they become enablers. And after the husband has killed somebody, they think, Oh, if only I or somebody had intervened, but it's too late. Now, of course, this sermon is not a sermon about meddling, okay? There's a big difference between constantly meddling in other people's lives over issues that are really not of great consequence and intervening on something that is life-threatening to that individual or is destroying the lives of other people. And that's why I started with that story of, uh, of Bynum, I think everybody can relate to that story. Now, it used to be people would sit when their planes were hijacked and just hope some professionals, you know, would be able to deal with these hijackers. Now, after nine eleven, uh, there is almost every flight, there's going to be somebody who's going to rush that. Hey, we'll die one way or another. We're going to, to rush that hijacker. And so people can identify with that. They say, yes, okay, that kind of intervention, I can understand. But if a person is drunker than a skunk and he's getting into a car and going to endanger the lives of other people i think that's a serious issue as well that needs to be dealt with and if he repeatedly does this it's time for you to intervene or to ask uh, some relatives to help you intervene perhaps ask church officers to do so that's a safe illustration because i don't think we have any drunks in this congregation but it could happen it could happen even in christian churches And so with that as a background, I want us to dive into the text here. We're going to start at verse 14. Now, one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, saying, he told on Nabal. He was a snitch, right? And uh, some people might say, you know, this guy was a gossip. He shouldn't be telling uh, other people about what's going on. But he was not a gossip. He was seeking to find a solution to an immediate problem that existed, and the person he shared the information with was a part of that solution. Rather than fleeing, which would have been the easier thing to do, and rather than confronting Nabal, which we will see has already proved to be fruitless in the past, uh, he... Uh, asked Abigail to intervene somehow. And this is the first difficult obstacle that people have to get over if they are going to be effective in interventions, Uh, if they're going to be effective in saving a person from himself when he's totally blind to the seriousness of what he is involved in. Nobody wants to be a whistleblower. Nobody wants to be a snitch. But there are situations where there really is no choice. It's okay when you've got a relative that's standing up on a roof, ready to commit suicide, you know, to ask somebody to intervene, and uh, nobody's going to say, you shouldn't be gossiping. You shouldn't be snitching. I think people would recognize in that kind of a situation, it's perfectly appropriate uh, to get involved. None of us wants to be a gossip, uh, since gossip is a sin, and people feel bad when they have to go behind someone's back in a serious situation even though it is extremely serious and I would say it's actually good that we feel bad about that that should be our instinct because normally going behind somebody's back and talking about them is gossip it's a sin that the Bible says we should not be engaged in so what makes this any different why is this not gossip and let me give you three reasons first people had already tried to reason with Nabal in the past and they knew it was not going to work here it's not like this is the first time and i want you to take a look at uh, the last phrase of verse 17 where this servant says he is such a scoundrel that one cannot speak to him so there's obviously some history here there's been a uh, I, I, if there had been no history the servants you know could have reasoned with him and said look you may not have realized it but these soldiers look like they are really ticked off we're going to be in trouble if you don't change your mind about this Uh, So you wouldn't need to talk behind his back. But when you've got a long history of people being in denial and lashing out at you every time you confront them over their drunk driving or whatever the crisis might be, then it is perfectly appropriate to go and ask people to help you with intervention. I think that's at the heart of what Matthew 18 is talking about, where you go and you take one or two others with you. If they don't listen, you bring one or two more. The second thing that keeps this from gossip, being gossip, is that the danger was imminent. In fact, if Abigail had not been so speedy, they may may well all have died. There was no time uh, to be uh, seeking to reason with them. And if they had, they'd all be dead. The third thing that keeps this from being gossip is that the person that this servant is talking to is Abigail, who is a part of the solution. Now, let me give you a great definition of gossip. Quote, gossip is the sharing of information with someone who is neither part of the problem nor part of the solution, unquote. I think that's a a perfect definition of gossip. Let me repeat that. Gossip is the sharing of information with someone who is neither part of the problem nor part of the solution. So if this servant had been grumbling with the other servants and bad-mouthing, you know, the master, that would be an entirely different thing. But he was a part of the solution, and Abigail was a part of the solution. And actually, they were both a part of the problem, too, because they were both going to be dead meat, you know, if they didn't do something. So they're a part of the solution, and they're part of the problem. So it's the very antithesis of... um, of gossip. Now, I will grant you that many times so-called Christian concerns is gossip. You know, they're talking with each other, sharing prayer requests. Hey, have you ever heard what's happening going on over here? We need to be praying for these people. And I would say it is absolutely gossip because they're not ones who are willing to go on the ropes and they're talking to people who are not willing to go on the ropes. It's gossip. If all you're doing is praying about it, it is gossip. People like this are willing to go on the ropes. They're willing to be involved. We're going to be seeing a whole bunch of other uh, elements that are involved that make this the utter diff- uh, opposite of gossip. Uh, again, in terms of that definition, you're sharing something with a person who is a part of the problem and a part of the solution. That's exactly what intervention is, right? It is providing a solution. So it is. Totally different from gossip. The second huge hurdle that people have to overcome before they're willing to intervene is submission. And it is a good hurdle. I'm glad that we have this hurdle laid out for us in the Scriptures. When we are an employee, like that servant was, or when we are a wife, like Abigail was, intervention should be a difficult thing for us to do. Okay, Our instinct should be submission. But when submission turns into enabling, we've crossed over a line, and at that point, we become guilty of that sin. Do you see that? When we've, we've become an enabler, we become guilty. There was a pastor who was on a morning walk, and uh, he noticed this lady who was really struggling with this baby carriage, pushing it up the hill. And he had time on his hands, so he offered to help her push the carriage, and once he started pushing it, he realized what it was so hard. I mean, it must have been rusty wheels or something, but it was a big load, and it was hard, but he got it up to the top of the hill, and at the top he says, do you mind if I take a look at your baby? And she laughed at him and says, oh, pastor, this isn't a baby that we've been struggling with. It's my husband's weekly beer supply. And he's thinking, ah, here I have been helping this guy with his problem. And here is a lady who's sweetly helping her husband. He's so drunk he can't even get the beer. But she goes out and she gets it for him. And it's so easy when you're in the midst of those kind of situations, gradually, gradually, to become an enabler and not even to know where that, where that shift from submission into enabling has, has come from. And uh, many people wonder, how is it that those morbidly obese men and women who are 500 to 800 pounds could get that way? I mean, some of them can hardly even move. How do they get fed? Almost always, it's a mother or a sister who is enabling those people uh, to to become obese in this way. Now, in the case of the picture that I've put into your outlines there, uh, Donna Simpson, it was her husband who was the enabler. Donna had a goal of reaching 1,000 pounds by this year, and her husband, Philippe Guamba, said, Gaining weight makes Donna happy, and seeing her happy makes me happy. Okay, he was an enabler. Last Christmas, she ate a 30,000-calorie meal. Let me tell you what she ate over a course of two hours. And To me, this is just unbelievable, but I've verified it from a number of sources. This is true. She ate two 25-pound turkeys, two maple-glazed hams, 10 pounds of baked potatoes, five pounds of mashed potatoes. Are you sick yet? Uh, I just can't imagine anybody's stomach could even hold this much stuff, but she must have one amazing stomach. But anyway, here's the rest of what she ate on that uh, meal. Five loaves of bread, five pounds of herb stuffing, three-quarters of a gallon of gravy, three-quarters of a gallon of cranberry sauce, 20 pounds of vegetables, and a gooey dessert of marshmallow, cream cheese, whipped cream, and cookies. Like I say, it took two hours for her to eat that. Now, she can hardly move around. Who's bringing her this stuff? Her husband is. He was an enabler. And her relatives finally just, this became so public, they became embarrassed, and they said, they came in and intervened, and they said, this is wrong. You must not do this. And they tried to help her to see the error of her ways. And now on her website that used to be showing pictures of her gaining weight, she has apologized to the world and she has said what she has done is wrong. She's trying to gain weight. But here was a situation where people came in. They intervened on her behalf because even her husband was not willing to do what he should have been doing. Now let me clarify. I am not saying that you need to get on everybody's case who is overweight okay that would be meddling okay you are not guilty of another person's sins simply because you overlook their sins that's an entirely different issue first Peter 4 verse 8 says love will cover a multitude of sins okay we overlook each other's sins in this congregation all the time don't we at least I overlook your sins <laughs> maybe you don't overlook mine <laughs> But um, <laughs> I don't feel like I need to intervene on every single sin that is out there. Why? Because I know you're growing in the Lord and God's not finished with you yet. But when it comes to things like uh, maybe heading toward a divorce or, 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 or things um, start heading into serious physical abuse or drug addiction, addictions, we elders have to intervene. And we're not going to be satisfied unless there is change, substantive change that's going on. But you need to distinguish that from constant meddling. We do not feel like we have to intervene on every single sin that a person does. But when a person is endangering his own life like Nabal clearly was doing, or he's endangering the lives of other people, or he is ruining and destroying a a, a relationship, or ruining the testimony of a church or he's so addicted to a substance that he can't help himself, he's in slavery to something, people need to intervene. Uh, And um, eventually, there can even be church discipline. But um, even after discipline has occurred, we can't tell you all the gory details because that would be involving us in gossip. Just because a person has been excommunicated does not mean we can share everything. So I'm trying to distinguish here. What is gossip? What is not gossip? But uh, we may need to intervene with an elderly relative who is so unsafe in their driving that we are worried they're going to one of these days get into a car accident and kill somebody some bystander or some other car. These are hard things to do, but what I'm going to try to paint for you this morning is that we all, at one point or another, are going to have to be involved in intervention. We need to know how to do it. We need to know how to do it. Virtually every commentary agrees that what Abigail did here was very proper. Uh, not everybody agrees. I listened to a tape by Elizabeth Elliot, and I uh, forget the name of the other woman, where they were saying, uh, she should have just submitted and done whatever and just leave it up to God's providence. Even said that um, women, if the husband asks her to be involved in a sin, you just go ahead and submit. And I'm thinking, no, absolutely not. So I want to go through to try to be as clear as I can on what the Scripture allows, what it does not allow. So every commentary that I have, anyway, agrees Abigail did the right thing. So I want to ask the question, why is this not contrary to God's call for submission? She's undermining her husband, okay? Well, we know from the book of Acts, we know from 1 Peter and from some other passages that submission is not absolute, and to treat it as absolute is servility. It is not submission. Submission is always in the Lord, and so here are some general rules of thumb on when intervention does not violate this rule of submission, first would submission make you sin if it makes you sin then you clearly may not do it you may not submit uh, to your authority with peter you must say we ought to obey god rather than man acts 5 verse 29 i think most people recognize these kinds of situations when you're objective you're from outside but when you're in the midst of the situation, it's really hard to see straight on these types of things. And so you might need you know, a friend to come along and to help you. There are people, there are I've known in other countries, uh, people who are, are, are believers, and they feel like, hey, we need to submit to the civil government, so I need to report all of the Christians in our network to people. And in China, they've learned you can't do that. That actually involves you in the sin of, of destroying your brother and your sister doing harm and damage to them a uh, second would submission ignore a biblical crime that your family member is currently engaged in now I say a biblical crime because not everything that the state out here calls a crime is a biblical crime we've got to clearly distinguish and I say is currently involved in because the Bible indicates that repentance can clean the slate murder being you know one exception where there cannot be, it, there does need to be a clearing of the land. But anyway, we won't get into that. But it's the Bible alone that can define this. And I think it should be obvious because in some countries they consider being a Christian a crime, right? So I think just on that level you have to recognize just because the state calls it a crime does not make it so. You've got to look in the Bible. So we need to think clearly on this. Deuteronomy 13, verse 6 says that if your family member anybody in your family or any dear and close friend is about to commit a a capital crime, you must, you have an obligation before God to try to intervene, to stop him from that. And if you are not successful, to turn him over to the state who has jurisdiction over those capital crimes. There's got to be intervention, the Bible says. Now, of course, it's only for a serious crime, but let me read the text. It says that intervention is necessary, quote, if your brother, the son of your mother, your son or your daughter, the wife of your bosom or your friend who is as your own soul, unquote, implicates you in that capital crime. Now, it's so obvious it shouldn't even have to be mentioned, but it does have to be mentioned because when people are in the midst of these situations, they cannot think clearly. They allow their husband to engage in incest for years with the sick thought that they are in submission to their husbands. And it it is really awful. That is not submission. That is servility. A lot of loony ideas out there about submission. And Deuteronomy 13.6 says that you are guilty of that crime. You are guilty of that crime in God's eyes if you are an enabler of a biblical crime. Does that make sense? I think that, at least we have to say, is an exception to submission. Now, I added the phrase, is currently involved in, because 1 Corinthians 6 mentions a list of some capital crimes, and says no Christian should ever be involved in these things, but it goes on to say, such were some of you. Well, how come they weren't turned in? Such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. So you don't necessarily turn people in for crimes that they committed umpteen years ago and repented of umpteen years ago, uh, that there, there's, especially if it's past the, 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 what's it called, the statute of limitations. Uh, that is, and again, there, is, there are some unclarities here, but I'm trying to at least present before you that there are some issues that you need to balance out okay um let me have you turn with me to first peter chapter 3 because there's so many misunderstandings about what submission is i want to give you a quick submission a quick uh overview of what submission is not And the reason for this, as I've already mentioned, there are some people out there that have such radical ideas on submission. And this is a radical passage on submission, but they go beyond the text. And they say, even if it involves sin, you just got to trust the Lord. He's going to somehow bail you out. You go along, you submit. And I say, no, that is absolutely not the correct case. Now, this is a beautiful passage on what submission means. And I'm not going to deal with that at all today. I just want to look at what it is not. First Peter 3, beginning at verse 1. He starts off by saying everyone is involved in submission. This is not something unique to wives. It says wives likewise be submissive. Now that word likewise indicates she's to do it in the same way of others who are submitting. Who are the others? Well, he's pointing back to chapter 2 where he says citizens need to submit to the civil government employees need to submit to employers, and Jesus submitted to the Father. And he's saying, likewise you wives, you need to be submitting uh, in the same way. All of us must be in submission. So the moment you make a wife's submission more radical or less radical than the other submissions, you are taking this totally out of context. Now, I'm not saying... That the husband submits to the wife and the wife submits to the husband. No, everybody's in submission, but it's different orders of submission. Okay, second, it says, wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husband. So he's not saying every wife has to submit to every man. No, you submit to your own husbands, not to somebody else's husband. Third, submission does not mean giving up independent thought. Now, why do I say this? I say it because verse 1 is directly addressed to the wives, not to the husband. Say, hey, tell your wives about this because they're not going to be able to figure out what I'm preaching on. No, he's directly speaking to the wives. And secondly, these wives have had enough independent thought that they have rejected their husband's pagan thinking and they have become Christians, okay? There had to be at least some independent thinking there for them to do that. So, submission does not mean you blindly believe everything that your husband believes, otherwise these wives could never have become Christians. You are accountable to God for what you believe. You've got to study the Scriptures. Fourth, submission does not mean that a wife should give up efforts to influence her husband in a godly direction. Again, verse 1, Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word... They, without a word, may be won by the conduct of their wives. They may be won. Apparently, these women, he wants them to be winning their husbands to a position that their husbands don't presently uh, 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 believe in. Now, he says you're not to do it with nagging. That's what it means without a word. Don't nag. But it doesn't mean that they didn't share the word earlier. They obviously did share the word because it says even if some do not obey the word. So he wants the wives to be bringing the Word of God into the family, and if those husbands reject the Word of God, he says, Okay, drop it. Don't be pushing. Don't be nagging. But it's not as if they weren't seeking to bring the Word and to, in some way, influence. If the husband's willing to listen, great. You know, you share the Word of God with them. Fifth, submission does not mean that a wife has to give in to every demand of her husband. Take a look at verse 2 when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. Now, there were parts of the pagan world back then that this was being addressed to where the pagans wanted their wives to be involved in orgies and wife swapping and other perverse activities. And he said, no, you wives need to be engaged in chaste conduct. And so that too implies limits to submission such as we've been talking about earlier. Sixth, submission is not based on lesser intelligence. This whole passage indicates the the woman's competence not only to make a decision of faith, but to be able to apply Peter's words in their lives. 1 Samuel 25 made it very, very clear that Abigail was more intelligent than her husband. Okay, so it's not an issue of intelligence. It has nothing whatsoever to do with that. Now, in 1 Peter, he goes on, in the next verses, to describe the kind of beauty uh, that is involved in true submission. Verses 3 through 6. Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. For in this manner in former times the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves being submissive to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham calling him Lord whose daughters you are if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. And of course that last verse indicates another thing that submission is not. It is not timidity reverence for husbands which the bible commands women to have reverence for their husbands and even uses a different term for fear is not the same thing as being timid or having terror or being afraid a lot of those situations that i talked about like um, enabling morbid obesity and drunk driving and stuff like that even incest is because these women have been intimidated by their husbands they are fearful of their husbands and he's saying that's that should not be the case first samuel uh in in first samuel 25 even though abigail tried to rescue her her husband she was not an enabler uh, of her husband Uh, she was not timid to tell him what she had done after he woke up for her from his stupor now she was smart enough to realize there's no point in talking to him while he's in the stupor she waits until afterwards but still, she's not tim- she is not intimidated at all. The last thing in this First Peter passage is that verse 7 says that submission is not inconsistent with equality in Christ. It says, Husbands, likewise, dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. Okay, so they're joint heirs with their husband. Now, there's a whole bunch of points that show how radical this submission should be and is. It's a beautiful passage. I'm not going to make any comments about that whatsoever. I just wanted to point out the most famous passage on submission says there are limits to that submission. Now, let's go back to 1 Samuel chapter 25. And by the way, if you keep reading in that 1 Peter passage 8 through 12, it says if you do, this is the only way that both husband and wife can love life can have the blessing of the Lord uh, resting uh, upon them and see good days. But in 1 Samuel 25, commentators point out that Abigail was seeking to protect her husband even though he didn't deserve it, and he didn't want the protection. She knew that David would not kill her. And so here's a good chance to get rid of a lousy husband. Let him come, okay? And some wives have this attitude, yeah, I'll take the easy way out, whether it's divorce or whatever, she didn't have that. She was doing what was in her husband's best interests. Her motives were pure toward David. They were pure toward, uh, toward Nabal. And so we've seen so far that the intervention of Abigail did indeed avoid gossip. It avoided rebellion. It, it was consistent with submission. It avoided enabling. And if you look at your outlines, point C, it says intervention was necessary because the time was short. Verse 14 Now, one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, saying, Look, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, and he reviled them. Now, the wilderness was pretty uh, close. And based on the body language that this servant saw of those other um, uh, soldiers, he knew it was not going to be very long, and they were going to be seeing trouble. If she didn't do something very quickly, uh, there, there could be disaster. And so this is yet another hurdle to doing intervention properly because of discomfort. (coughs) People will sometimes procrastinate, procrastinate until finally it's too late to be able to do anything. On the other hand, others go to the opposite extreme. They're running off to the police when much lesser intervention could be achieved. In fact, 1 Corinthians 6 warns you, don't go to court. Don't go to the civil magistrate. Go to the church church. Officers, You know, you shouldn't be going to the maximum when a minimal approach could work. But sometimes there's not a lot of time to think. Mr. Schlitzer uh, tells of how he saved the life of a fellow electrician by the name of Mr. Hildebrandt. Uh, Hildebrandt was uh, walking along. I think he was reading uh, something and did not notice a high wire voltage that was broken, that was dangling. He would have walked right into on the, I think it was a sidewalk, but wherever it was, Schlitzer yelled at him at the top of his lungs, and they could not, he could not hear him over all the noise. So he picked up a rock, threw it at Hildebrandt, hit him square on the chest. Now that's going to make a man angry. <laughs> at least it would make me upset. What in the world is this guy thinking? But it made him look up just in time to not walk into that into that high voltage wire and with tears in his eyes he thanked schlitzer for th- saving his life so there was a situation where this guy receives something painful receives something unwanted in fact it's something that makes him angry and yet it's welcomed and i think when you engage in intervention properly like abigail did in fact her speech is an absolute masterpiece i don't know how i'm going to preach on it next well it won't be next week probably but It's so long and so complicated, I'll figure it out somehow, but it is a masterpiece of intervention. But if you engage in it properly, eventually people will thank you. They may initially be really upset with you, really angry, but usually those perps, especially if they're believers down the road, they say, thank you so much for having the courage to intervene and to get me out of this mess that I have uh, found myself in. Okay, point D says that intervention is sometimes needed when gross injustice has happened. We saw last week this was not anything that could be contractually enforceable, but when you see a relationship permanently ruptured, you might need to approach those parties as a peacemaker. And Lord willing, when we get to that speech, you're going to see some wonderful, wonderful principles of peacemaking. Anyway, this servant sees how fundamentally unfair this was. He sees how hurt... Uh, David's men must have felt. And let's begin reading just the last uh, couple words of verse um, of verse 14. And he reviled them, but the men were very good to us and we were not hurt, nor did we miss anything as long as we accompanied them when we were in the fields. They were a wall to us both by night and day. All the time we were with them keeping The sheep. Uh, Though nothing like this could have been enforced in a civil court, it was still an injustice, and it was there was broken relationships, there was danger. The fifth thing that we see here is that intervention was needed because the danger of permanent disaster. This is not a petty meddling. And that's verse seventeen. Now therefore, know and consider what you will do, for harm is determined against our master and against all his household. and I think I'll just stop there. When we're trying to intervene in people's lives, we need to make sure that it is serious, uh, that we're not engaged in meddling. Disaster was hanging over everyone's heads, and in this case, it took a second head to figure things out. The last reason that intervention was needed was because no one could reason with Nabal, and that's the last part of verse 17, for he's such a scoundrel that one cannot speak with him. Now, obviously, that would be the ideal, to reason with Nabal. But if they had taken that route, everybody would be dead, including Nabal. And so let's apply this. Drunks rarely acknowledge the idea that they've got a problem. They, they don't think they've got a problem. Meth users, same way. I'm using this drug responsibly. Just get off my back. You know. So I'm not hurting anybody. And, 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 they, and they think it's not your problem, it's mine. In fact, every meth user that I have counseled has been a liar, a veteran liar, and I've had to deal with the lying before we could get anywhere with the, the drug uh, use. Porn users deceive themselves and others into thinking, hey, I don't have a problem. And so like a drunk who didn't want help, Nabel didn't want help. So those are six things that show the need for intervention. Now let's very, very quickly uh, take a look at the speed of this intervention. Verse 18. Then Abigail made haste, and took two hundred loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five sheep already dressed, five seahs of roasted grain, one hundred clusters of raisins, and two hundred cakes of figs, and loaded them on the donkeys. And the interesting thing about this is, she didn't have to slaughter the sheep. These are all things that are prepared for that feast. And you keep reading later on in the chapter; they don't even notice that these things are missing. They he's even drunk i mean they've eaten all that they want and so nabal was clearly lying about not having enough food but she's saying okay what is stuff i can grab right now she grabs all of this food and she has to think clearly she has to uh, act uh, very very uh, quickly at the same time and a lot of interventions we have to do the same thing Uh, some of our elders recently had to intervene on something in our denomination not very convenient, not very comfortable, but it had to be done. Uh, but this passage, again, shows that she's giving David what Nabal refused to give David. So she is undermining her husband, but she is undermining her husband in order to save his life. It was She was for her husband, okay, without being in denial about the seriousness of his sin. And as we've already seen in Deuteronomy 13, there are limited circumstances where this is allowable. I think, let me give you the ordinary. Wives should ordinarily never undermine their husbands unless it's a serious, serious issue that you're facing. Now we're going to finish off with the deed of intervention. Verse 19, And she said to her servants, Go on before me. See, I am coming after you. And commentators are divided exactly why she's sending the gifts ahead. Some think that she was maybe trying to soften David up uh, by having the gifts go forward, just like with uh, Jacob did with Esau. And others say, no, she's in such a hurry, she can't keep up with these servants. She says, just go on ahead and I'll catch up to you. I'm not going to deal with any of that. The only thing I want to point out is she involved others in this decision. She didn't just do it all by herself. Everyone was in agreement that Nabal needed intervention and David needed intervention. Well, everybody except for Nabal (laughs) and everybody except for David, right? But uh, they were in agreement. And if you're the only one who thinks that this family member needs some intervention, maybe we need to have grandpa quit driving or something like that. And all the other family members say, what? I mean, he's doing okay. You might want to say, okay, I guess I won't push this. But if everybody's in the same boat, you're in a little bit more comfortable position. And there are times where we are so mad, we think intervention is needed. And instead of making that decision, you talk with your family members and you say, am I missing something here? Or is this something that we really should be involved in intervening in? And so it's just a caution again, that we need to make sure that we are not abusing this concept of intervention. Are others willing to be involved? Well, that's maybe a good sign. If not, we might need to rethink it. Secondly, it involved personal presence. She says, I am coming after you. She doesn't make other people do her dirty work for her. One of the things that makes me extremely angry about state interventions into so-called problems is that they do so, CPS will come into a home, damage a home permanently based on an anonymous tip. That is ridiculous. That should never, never happen. What we are talking about here is personal presence. And if you come to the elders and you don't want to be involved at all, forget it. We're not here to do your dirty work for you. Now, we will help you, but personal presence is always important. You've got to be involved. You're not off the hook. And when you get to her speech, you realize how imperative her personal presence were. Uh, was. Uh, She gives an amazing speech. In fact, it's so amazing. I wish I could have read it earlier, but it's so amazing. It may explain why almost all of the Jews considered her a prophetess. And why the roman catholic church considered her to be a prophetess i haven't really evaluated all of the evidence pro and con whether she is or not all i want to deal with is she was there with personal presence she was not an anonymous whistleblower she was willing to face nabal later in the chapter and say exactly what she did and she was certainly willing to face david both david and nabal needed an intervention both of them needed her personal presence hopefully so i ever repeated that enough times that you won't forget it third It bypassed normal protocols. Last phrase of verse 19, but she did not tell her husband Nabal. If she had told him, her husband, the whole household may have died. Well, at least the males. Uh, would have died and so again it emphasizes that interventions are not standard procedures they happen when nothing else will work and I hope you're you're seeing here what I'm doing I'm trying to show you the the importance of intervention and yet say boy you got to be really cautious in how you engage in this because it could be abused okay fourth it was dangerous for her to do this reading verses 20 through 22 So it was, as she rode on the donkey, that she went down under cover of the hill, and there were David and his men coming down toward her, and she met them. Now David had said, Surely in vain I have protected all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missing of all that belongs to him, and he has repaid me evil for good. Now I didn't say it the way David probably said it. (laughs) He was probably saying it with real emotion. And commentators say that these are the most venomous words to come off of David's lips and all of the... Uh, all of the Old Testament, he was angry, and I probably should have read it with an angry voice, you know. But um, uh, anyway, it was a dangerous situation, and it would take tact, humility, graciousness, and wisdom to diffuse the situation. Not everyone is equally good at interventions. That's why, you know, Galatians six verse one says, "You who are spiritual." Are the ones you know should be involved in that intervention now none of all of us are going to have to be involved at some point but if you're not mature and you don't have the you're you're worried you're going to make matters worse you might need to take another person who is mature don't bring another immature person who's going to make everything blow up for you but anyway what i'm saying here is there was danger there was an element of danger in most interventions and the danger may simply be that you make matters worse that you make the rift permanent uh, through your attempts to help, but it could even go beyond that. I've been in interventions where I said, boy, there is a strong possibility I could be killed in this intervention, but I believed it was absolutely imperative that I take that risk and get involved. Now, I do find it interesting. David took an oath. <laughs> that didn't call down judgment on himself if he didn't follow through. It called down judgment on the rest of his enemies if he did. May God do so and more also to the enemies of David if I leave one male of all who belong to him by morning light. Uh, one commentator said David's oath form is admittedly irregular, and that's why the NIV arbitrarily deviates from the Hebrew and translates it differently. But anyway, it may be uh, admittedly irregular, but it reflects a degree of wisdom. It avoids the risk of taking the Lord's name in vain. And it insulates David from disastrous consequences in the event the vow was not fulfilled. It essentially obligated God to kill any enemies that David himself might fail to kill. But the only little point that I want to pick up on here is David was treating all of them like enemies. And that highlights something we should be very careful to distinguish in uh, when we engage in interventions david actually thought of himself as probably engaged in an intervention on behalf of his 600 men who had been abused right he's intervening but his intervention uh, was not good it was ungodly prideful destructive flowed from anger did not flow from love had as its goal the destruction of people rather than destruction of the problem, and it would have created more problems than it solved. And part of the issue was that David was treating them all like enemies. Now, if you are treating your brother or your sister that you're intervening with with a degree of anger where they think you're treating them as an enemy, it is not going to work. It's just going to ooze out of you, and it's going to destroy the peacemaking process. That's the main point. Now, Abigail's intervention was the exact opposite. It was godly, humble, constructive, flowed from love, provided a solution. It gave honor to David. It did not treat either David or Nabal as the enemy and was peacemaking par excellence to the point where David later on admits to her, she's right and I've been incredibly foolish. In doing, in, in doing this. It was Abigail who had the sense to realize that her husband was not the enemy and David was not the enemy. Satan was the enemy. So she's got the right focus. So rather than praying imprecations against them both, what she does is she tries to intervene gently in order to reconcile. That's her goal. Verse 23, Now, when Abigail saw David, she dismounted quickly from the donkey, fell on her face before David, and bowed down to the ground. So she does not intervene with arrogance, harshness, or accusation. I don't think that would have worked very well with David. Instead, her attitude displayed here and in her speech shows the characteristics of a true peacemaker. Intervention is not about getting even. Intervention is not about getting your way. Intervention is not about giving that person what for, okay? It's not about venting. It is not about putting them in their place. Such intervention rarely works. In fact, it usually makes things worse. What intervention is about is trying to cut through the blindness, which is almost always there, where a person cannot see the seriousness of his problems, but doing it with tact, humility, wisdom, and diplomacy, now, you and I may not be as good as Abigail was at it. She was masterful. I'd I stand in awe at her speech. Uh, but still, this is a goal that every one of us should have when we deal with fellow believers who are blinded by their sin. Now, let me conclude with two scriptures that will fill out the picture of what I've said. And uh, these are just a few more characteristics that should clothe us. And the first one is Galatians 6 and verse 1. Brethren, the man is overtaken in any trespass. You who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Paul says it takes spiritual maturity to do this well. So if you don't have that maturity, again, bring along somebody who is mature. You're going to, to need it. Second, it takes gentleness and meekness to do this. When you have those kind of characteristics, what it does is it smooths the waters. Third, Paul says it takes an attitude of humility, or what one person said, "There but the grace, there but for the grace of God go I." Kind of an attitude. Now, if you really, really, really believe that you could be tempted in exactly the same way that this person did, you're going to go into that into that thing without an edge, and and, and you're going to. Uh, be able to to smooth out the the corners there. And so Galatians six one, I always recommend. Any time people go into a confrontation, I tell them prayerfully read through Galatians six one. Ask God to give you that characteristic. One more passage, Second uh, Timothy two, and verses twenty four, twenty four through twenty six and a servant of the Lord must not quarrel. Uh, That doesn't really work well in interventions. But be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition. And I think you can see how those characteristics will go a long way in intervention. So let me read that again. Must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition. If God perhaps will grant them repentance, so that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses. Blindness is usually the reason we need to have an intervention. Satan has completely blinded their eyes. They cannot see straight. And uh, they think, you're a nutcase to say they've got an alcohol problem. I don't have a problem. They're in denial. Okay, They're blind. And so he says, that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil having been taken captive by him to do his will. Sometimes interventions are needed because Satan's not only blinded them, he's taken them captive. They are enslaved to pornography or they are enslaved to alcohol or something else. They're not going to get out of this slavery to Satan unless somebody comes in and rescues them, brings them out of it. So that's 2 Timothy two twenty four through 26. And I think if you take those two passages together with everything that we've looked at in 1 Samuel chapter 25, I think you've got a well-rounded approach to intervention that God will give you success on. And uh, may God prosper you if you ever have to do this. It's a painful thing to go through, but may He prosper you if you have to do it. Let's pray. Oh, Father, this is a, a difficult subject and yet it's a subject every one of us is going to have to face at some point or another. And I pray that you would enable us to master not only the intellectual issues that are involved, but help us to master the character issues that would enable us to be peacemakers like Abigail and the servant were. We pray, Father, for uh, you to give the kind of health and peace and strength Uh, for each of the people here that when new people come into this congregation whose lives perhaps are held uh, in captivity to Satan, that we would be in a position to lovingly and graciously and tactfully being able to rescue them from the issues that they are in. We love you and we bless you that you have uh, uh, trusted us with this kind of ministry, but we realize we can only do it uh, through the power of your Holy Spirit, and we ask for your Spirit's measure in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.